our Father in heaven, we are so thankful for your great love and mercies. And this week, Lord, we, we just spent a day, a holiday, where we gathered together with family, with friends, to thank you for the many blessings you bestow upon us. But the reality, Lord, is that every day is a thanksgiving because you provide for us every day. And so, Lord, we have gathered here because we want to learn more about you. Father, we can't do that without the presence of the Holy Spirit. We are reminded that spiritual things are spiritually discerned. So, Lord, we ask for the blood of Christ to wash away our sin, but we ask also for the mighty outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Not because we deserve it, Lord, we don't, but because we desperately need it. We know that there is nothing in us that commends, uh, Lord, your work on our behalf except our great need, and that moves your hand. And so, Lord, please be present with us. May your angels form around this gathering, and in particular this series, a ring of fire that the evil one will not be permitted to annoy. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, a mind to perceive. We ask it of you, dear God, and we thank you as we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen. I want to once again welcome friends and guests to our Unlocking the Mysteries of the Sanctuary series. So I see a number of faces here that I don't know. This is good. And so I'm going to share a little bit about myself, so you know a little bit about me, and, uh, and then I'll share a little bit of my history with the sanctuary, as well as some thoughts on the series before we launch in. My name is George Baute, and I am the pastor here at the Hayden Lake Church. And uh, I come here with a varied background. I have been a high school teacher, a college instructor. I have been a youth pastor, a district pastor a hospice chaplain, and an academy chaplain. So I have held a number of different titles. But my favorite is that of husband and father. I have my beautiful Southern Belle here, Sue Ellen, and uh, my precious daughter with, uh, sitting next to her, my son in the back. And, um, and so we have traveled from all over. Um, we have lived in New York. Actually, that's not true. I did. I was born there. I grew up in Southern California, lived in North Carolina, Tennessee, Arkansas, and now Idaho. My family uh, is originally from the island of Cuba, and they came to the United States in search for freedom. And, uh, and our background, my father was atheist. Uh, he's passed away now. My mother was a devout Catholic who later studied her Bible and read herself into the Protestant uh, faith and movement. And, um, and, and I want to share now, just so that's a little bit about me. And as we go along, I will share more about me. I, I am a, a very personable person, I like to think. Um, I, I, I have a very uh, deep interest for people and their journey. But I want to share with you now a little bit of my interest in the sanctuary, why I have an interest in the sanctuary. My interest began, actually, when I was 10 years old. Um, my mother at this time was now attending the, uh, the Adventist church. And uh, I, uh, at 10, went to a VBS, a vacation Bible school. And uh, I believe it was the only one I ever went to, to be quite honest. But this VBS, which was located, was, what took place in Glendale, their theme for this vacation Bible school was the sanctuary. And uh, whoever put this thing together, put a lot of work into it. It was a labor of love. 
they put together an Ark of the Covenant made of wood, and it was very well done. It was beautifully done. And then um, on top, they had these two angels made of wood. And inside, they had uh, put together um, a, a, a Ten Commandments. You know how we typically understand the shape to be made out of wood? Then they Xeroxed the commandments, and they glued it on to this, 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 this wooden commandments, and they made it look like stone. And uh, in my home growing up, my mother, even though we were Catholic and we were taught that we couldn't understand the Bible, don't read it, my mother understood it to be God's book. And that made it holy. And that inside were God's Ten Commandments, and that those Ten Commandments were holy. So growing up, my mom really impressed this on us. And as a 10-year-old, I can remember when I held those Ten Commandments in my hand, that it, it, it actually gave me chills, that I was holding this document in my hand that was God's commandments. It left such an incredible impression upon me. But later, as I grew older, uh, I, I walked away uh, from God, and I'll share a little bit about that story too as we go along. And, and I just went into the world. You know, in Southern California, living right there near Hollywood, uh, there, there's a lot of world to jump into, okay? And I did. Later, when I came back to the Lord um, and I began to attend church again, the topic of the sanctuary came up many times in some of the circles that, uh, of discussion. And I heard some people say, oh, the sanctuary is so important for us Christians today. And then I would hear others say, oh, the sanctuary really is irrelevant to Christians today. And I would sit there and I think to myself, well, both of those things can't possibly be true. So I did something very unusual. I opened my Bible and I began to study the matter for myself. And as I did, I came to the realization that the sanctuary is extremely important and relevant for Christians today. And we're gonna learn that as we go through uh, these presentations. Later, God led me to put together the lessons that we're gonna be going through. And these lessons um, are, are actually, uh, I, I'm actually working to have them uh, printed and made available to others to be able to teach and to share others the wonderful views and things found in the sanctuary. Now, one thing about me you're gonna learn really fast is I am a very practical person. I do not live in the world of ideas. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but you, you can't live there. And I'm a very practical person. So for me, the sanctuary, whatever I learn in the Bible, if it isn't relevant and practical, I have other things I need to do. Are you with me? And so our, the, these presentations are going to be very practical, personal, and relevant. Now, when we're talking about the sanctuary, um, there is so much in there that time would not allow us a lifetime to get to the bottom of it. So what I'm going to do in these presentations is uh, we're going to study the highlights. I'm going to focus my, our presentations on the furniture. There is a message in each one of those furnishings that God gave to us to understand. We will make some forays into some of the festivals as well as into some of the uh, sacrifices and whatnot. But as I said, there's so much to go into 
that time just wouldn't allow it. So for the sake of our series, we're going to hit the high points. And um, you're going to find you're going to find that the sanctuary message is a very simple message. And yet, in that simplicity, it is profound. Extremely profound. I'm going to divide the series into two parts, our introductory and advanced. The introductory part is going to focus on uh, what, the, what the Bible refers to as the outer court, where we have the brazen altar and the labor of water, and, and also on the holy place where we have the table of showbread, the menorah, and the golden altar. And this is going to be the introductory portion. And this portion is going to be all about a relationship with Jesus. Did you know that the sanctuary actually teaches us how to have a relationship with Jesus Christ? It teaches us how to walk with God. We're going to learn that. We're going to study that. Then the second part, which is the advanced part, is going to be in the most holy place. The most holy place is the prophetic section. Actually, the whole sanctuary is, is, is a prophetic timeline. We're going to see that. But, but the most holy place focused specifically on end-time prophecy. And, and it's really interesting. Notice the progression. First comes a relationship with Jesus. Don't miss that. Then you put that relationship in the context of end-time prophecy. And that's what we're going to be doing as we go through uh, these sections. Now, what I'd like to do is... Um, is go ahead and get, get started on our lesson. And you have your documents there. Feel free to make comments. Uh, write on those. Then go home, get a three-hole punch. You can put it inside your lesson, and I'll tell you why. This is a very unique message. It's going to make the Bible make a whole lot of sense. What we're going to find is that every teaching in the Bible is found in the sanctuary. Every one is found there. And, uh, and you're going to want this, this material because you're going to want to share this with other people. You're going to want to. Now, I have been praying for you, and I uh, hope you'll pray for me too. But I have been lifting you up in prayer, uh, and, and not only the people here, uh, members of our church, but those in our community, uh, people I've never met, I've been praying for you. If you're here today, no, I have been praying for you. So has many others here. Uh, let's go ahead and get started once more. Uh, I will ask for a short prayer. And let's get going. Father, again, we just pause. I pray you place your words in my mouth. May it be Jesus, seen, heard, and felt, and glorified now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our story of the sanctuary begins actually in the Garden of Eden. In the beginning, God created a perfect world, and he created it for a perfect couple. And God taught Adam and Eve that their happiness was contingent upon their loyalty to God. And that loyalty was demonstrated in obedience. And they were given a very simple test. They were told that everything in the garden, all the food, all the fruit in the garden was theirs to eat except the fruit of one tree. And that tree was known as the tree of knowledge and good and evil. And so God, in Genesis 2, 17, said, But the tree of knowledge and good and evil, you shall not eat of it. For the day that you eat of it, you shall surely, what? Die. And we know the story, don't we? They did eat. They didn't pass the test. And as a result, death passed on to the human race. 
At that moment, the relationship that Adam and Eve had with God was severed. At before the tree, before they ate that fruit, they had a very loving and trusting relationship with God. But after they ate that fruit, that relationship turned to one of fear and guilt. And then they also lost their hold on life and were now destined to die. The prophets in the Bible spoke about this. Isaiah 59.2 says, But your iniquities, or your sins, have separated you from God, and your sins have hidden his face from you. And then in Romans 6, and by the way, that text, that text reminds us that God created us for a relationship. I'm going to elaborate on that a little further in a, in a moment. And then uh, Paul tells us in Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is what? Is death. And so here God had created us to live forever. But now that plan was interrupted, and now death enters the picture. And then in Romans 3.23, we have some really bad news. For how many? All have sinned and, and fall short of the glory of God. You know, my friends, the reality that we face today, you and I are terminal. You know, when you're young, you don't think about those things. You look at somebody my age and you think it's going to be two or three hundred years before you get there. <laughs> but it doesn't take long to get there. You and I are terminal. At the end of our short lives, a grave awaits all of us. The King Solomon says that it's a good thing for us to consider that. It impacts our choices. But all of us are term terminal. Because of Adam and Eve's choice, death came upon all of the human race. Not only that, but Eden was lost. And the future of humanity Apart from God is hopeless, friends. But how wonderful to know that our loving God stepped into the crisis and put into effect a plan to save repented, fallen human beings. My friends, today I want to tell you, God has an answer to the sin problem. He really does. And we find God's introduction to this plan in Genesis 3.15. And God, talking to Adam and Eve and the devil, had this to say. And I will put enmity between you, I'm sorry, and I will put what? Enmity, enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And with these words, God gave to the human race hope. There is hope for us. And in these studies, the sanctuary that we're going to study, we're going to look at God's plan to bring healing, hope, and restoration to lost and hurting humanity. A plan that leads us back to God. A plan that reveals the science of salvation. And so what we're going to learn in the sanctuary is that there is a science to salvation and that the sanctuary reveals that science you, you know the story of King David. This man was very honored of God. He was known as a man after God's own heart. And he rose to the heights, the dizzying heights of king over the people of God. And in that rise, 
He lost his focus upon God. And friends, when we lose our focus on God, we will fall for anything. And you know that David uh, got an eye on, on Bathsheba and, and entered into a relationship he should not have entered into. And this man who was so honored by God fell from grace. I submit to you that it was that fall that motivated David to study the sanctuary. Because it was in the sanctuary that David would find a God who forgives from our sins and a God who can reclaim us from the power of sin. And it motivated him to write these words, your way, O God, is in the sanctuary. David found it there. God gave the sanctuary to Israel as a mechanism of instruction to lead them to faith in the soon coming Messiah, the Messiah, Jesus, who is the healer of broken hearts and is the only hope to reclaim us from the ravages of sin. Everything in the sanctuary or connected with its services is a symbol of something that Jesus has done for us or is doing for us or is about to do for us in restoring us from, from sin. Now, <clears throat> I want to share with you some things that we are going to learn in the sanctuary. Through these studies, we will come to understand, as we never have before, the plan of salvation, God's plan to bringing deliverance and healing from the damaging effects of sin. Can you say amen to that? It's also we're going to learn how God gives us victory over sin. You know, when I began to realize the importance of the sanctuary and began to study it, I began reading what other people have written about it, and most people, and I don't, I don't mean this in a negative sense because there's a place for it, but most people, when they write about the sanctuary, you get things like gold means this and blue means that, and this is what took place at this furniture and this took place in that furniture. And you know what? That's very interesting, but it wasn't giving me victory over sin. Are you with me? And, and but when the Lord... I, I listened to a dear friend who began to explain to me the practical nature of the sanctuary. Suddenly, the whole thing came into focus for me, and I began to see how God gives fallen humans victory. Began to understand it. We're going to learn that. <clears throat> also, we're going to look into the origin of sin and God's final solution to it. Hey, how did we get into this mess in the first place? The sanctuary tells us. The next question is, how do we get out of this mess? The sanctuary is going to tell us. Next, uh, we're going to discover the amazing story of the cosmic drama unfolding between the forces of good and evil and the ultimate triumph of Jesus. The sanctuary is going to pull back the curtain, and we're going to see the unseen. We're going to see the, the, a larger warfare that goes beyond you and I that is taking place between Christ and Satan. Also, we're going to discover that the sanctuary is the key to understanding the Bible because the Bible is saturated with sanctuary terms. Were you aware that 133 chapters in the Bible are solely dedicated to the sanctuary? 133. In fact, if you took out all of the sanctuary terminology all the, the, the sanctuary words and imagery from Scripture, if you took out all of it, your Bible would literally fall apart in your hands. You see, the Bible writer wrote 
with the understanding that the reader understood the sanctuary. And that's especially true of the New Testament writer. The sanctuary is the key that unlocks the messages of the New Testament. What are you saying, Pastor? What I'm saying is this. If you do not understand the sanctuary, you're only getting half the message that the the New Testament writer is trying to communicate. The sanctuary is the key that unlocks it because they're using terms that unless you know the sanctuary, you don't get what they're saying. Does that make sense? Absolutely amazing. Um, our next, the next uh, three things. Number five, you will better understand Bible prophecy when seen through the sanctuary. You, you may have studied your Bible and you understand many uh, teachings of Scripture, but the sanctuary shows how those teachings are interrelated and then places them in the context of prophecy. Absolutely amazing as we go through and study that. The next is that we will enhance our relationship with Jesus uh, as we get better acquainted with the one who loves us and died to save us. And that's the best part, isn't it? Is to know Jesus. And then, of course, our last we will discover how to be ready for Jesus' second coming. You know, the second coming of Jesus is the climax of Scripture. I don't know if you are aware of that, but it is referenced over 1,500 times in the Bible. And we're going to find that that climax is, is the climax to the, to the battle between Christ and Satan, and it brings an end to sin. How many are looking forward to the end of sin? I am looking forward to that. As we now enter into our, our sanctuary presentation. Um, I want to share a little bit about the format that I have chosen for this series. It's a very easy format to work with. It's a question and answer format. So in essence, as we come together to study here, it's going to be a Bible study. Are you with me? Then you're going to be able to take those lessons home and prayerfully study them to make sure that the pastor is not leading you astray. Isn't that right? You need to study. You know, I, would you trust me with your bank account? Don't trust me with your soul. Does that make sense? If there's any man out there you wouldn't trust with your bank account, don't trust him with your soul. Because that's worth more to you than your bank account. So make sure to take those home and study it. So we're gonna, it's going to be a question and answer. And, and my education really is in education, so it fits nicely for my teaching style. Uh, one of the things you're going to find is I, I'm going to seek to to uh, put into play all of our senses. And uh, so you'll have a chance to see it. You'll have your presentations there as well as on the screen and in our models up here. Also to hear it as I present and also to speak as I ask you to read the little red letters, the high point in those texts. And what that's doing is it's helping us to really get a grasp of what we're learning. And it also helps with memory. How many here need to help with memory? All right. So that will help us uh, with our memory. You have your handouts with you. Uh, Please feel free to make copies of those for your personal use. So let's get started into our presentation and look at question number one. Now, before I get there, I want to give you the background. The text we're about to look at is is an experience that took place with two of the disciples of Jesus after the crucifixion of Christ. It is three days after his death. It is Sunday uh, morning. Two of his uh, disciples are heading to their home in the village of Emmaus. They are devastated. Their, their world has come to a, uh, uh, has been shattered because their friend Jesus was just murdered. 
He was just crucified. And they had hoped that he was the Messiah. I mean, the miracles that he did, the things he taught, the love that just oozed out of every look, out of every word, convinced them that he was the Messiah. But this death shattered it. So as they were walking home in those wee hours, devastated, they were saying to one another, we had hoped that he was the one. And suddenly a stranger comes alongside, begins questioning them, what is troubling you? And they open up to the stranger what was on their heart. And then the stranger began a Bible study. Luke 24, 22 and 44. 27 and 44. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning who? Himself. Then he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which are written in the law of, of Moses, remember that, and the prophets and the Psalms concerning who? Me. And so what happened here, th that expression, the law of Moses and the prophets, is, uh, is a way of saying the Old Testament. Okay? And so what Jesus did is he gave them a Bible study on that road. And he began to show them uh, the prophecies that pointed to him. But when it says the law of Moses, okay, we're talking about the five books of Moses, most of which are devoted to the sanctuary. And as he began to explain these things to them, suddenly the Bible says their hearts began to burn within them. And what they thought was the evidence, the way he died, the way Jesus died was the evidence that he wasn't the Messiah. Now they began to realize that that was the evidence that he was the Messiah. Because the Bible prophesied how he, how he was going to die. And so what Jesus is telling us here is that all the Bible, and in particular the sanctuary, is all about him. It's all about him. And if you look at the sanctuary and you line up the furniture in the sanctuary, you line it up, you end up with a cross. You end up with a cross. It's really interesting. When Israel, God organized Israel, <clears throat> gave him specific instructions when he brought him out of Egypt. And as they were traveling, God told each tribe where to set up. And then when they camped, he told each tribe where to camp. And he had Ephraim and Judah, who were the, were the largest of these uh, tribes, to line themselves up east and west. And if we had an aerial view of their encampment, what did it look like? A cross. By the way, I want you to take special notice. We'll touch on this tomorrow. I want you to notice from the edge of the, of the closest tents to the tabernacle, notice the distance. Do you see that? The plaza, these were the, 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 the Levitical tribes here. But are you noticing that distance? We're going to talk about that distance tomorrow uh, on our next, uh, next Saturday. But, uh, but all of it is about Jesus, and we're going to learn that. Let's take a look at question number two. What was one of the purposes of God in wanting the Israelites to build him a sanctuary? Exodus 25.8 tells us, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. I want to spend some time on this one. 
Remember we learned in the, in the text of Isaiah that sin separates us from God. Isn't that right? The reason being is that in choosing to go against God's will, we have chosen another master. That's what the Bible tells us. And that separates us from God. But isn't it wonderful to know that God did not give up when Adam and Eve and humanity and all of us made that choice? God didn't give up on us. You know, to me, this is extremely significant because one of the reasons why I walked away from God is because I didn't think God was interested in me. You know, when I look at a crowd, I see a crowd. When God looks at a crowd, he sees individuals. Are you with me? God sees individuals. So this text to me is really amazing because this text is telling me that while you and I were lost here, heaven wasn't a place to stay as far as Jesus was concerned. It wasn't a place to stay while you and I were lost here. God is relational. He is interested in you and me as individuals. We're not a number to Jesus. He knows our birthdays. He knows our cell phone. He knows a social security number. He was there the day you and I were born. And he will be there the day we are laid in our dusty graves. God is personal. He cares about us. And he wants to be with us. And this is not only true for Israel of old. It is true for you and I today. You know, I I don't know what brought you here today. Perhaps uh, your spouse dragged you here. (laughs) Perhaps you were driving by and uh, was just curious and and decided just to drop in. Uh, Whatever the reason is, behind that is an unseen hand. God brought you here today because he knows the yearning in your heart. He knows the longing. He knows what you've been looking for and he wants to give it to you. He wants to. Question number three. How was Moses to build the sanctuary? This is very important. Exodus 25, 9 says, According to all that I, this is God speaking, according to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the furnishings, just so shall you make it. And again, in Exodus 25, verse 4, it says, And see to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. This is very significant because what this is telling us is that Moses didn't make this up. Moses did not dream this up after being in Egypt and influenced by Egyptian culture, he put this together. No friend. God showed it to him and gave him specific instructions. You are to make it according to the pattern I showed you. I'm not interested in your creativity. I want you to be focused on mine. Does that make sense? We have to realize who is communicating with us here. It's not Moses. It's God. Very, very important. So the the sanctuary is the blueprint that shows God's plan of salvation. Every aspect of it, God was very careful that it was followed. And so what we find here uh, is, is in miniature the pattern after the sanctuary that's located in heaven. We're going to learn in this series that heaven is the great control center that has put into effect the plan of salvation. And that control center is the sanctuary up there. 
God gave, this is really interesting. One thing I have learned uh, about God in my journey with God, I've actually learned two things about God that's very fascinating. And one is that God is very transparent. And the second is that God is very respectful of your and my freedom of choice. God is not a manipulator. He is not a controller. He is respectful of our choice. And for us to make good choices, we have to have correct information. Isn't that right? So it blows my mind that, as, that in the heavenly sanctuary, which Paul writes about, if you need a reference for that, try uh, Hebrews 8. If you want to write that down, you want to see what Paul has to say about it. We're going to spend time there, but in case you want a, a head start, Hebrews 8. Uh, what we find is that the sanctuary in heaven, what we're going to find is the control center for the plan of salvation. The, uh, the, the angelic hosts are being mobilized to save you and me, friend. Understand that. It's very real. But for that, for that effort to be successful, God needs you and I to know what's going on up there so that you and I can cooperate with him intelligently. So what does he do? He builds a, a miniature of the heavenly, has it down here with specific services for the priests and sacrifices so that people watching can get what God is trying to do for them and cooperate with him. Now, I hope you're quiet because you're trying to digest that. What does that tell you about God? That he cares for us, that he respects our freedom of choice, that he treats us with dignity, that we have, we have a mind. I love that. But it also tells me that for this plan to be effectual for us, I have to be willing to cooperate with him. And so he gives us the sanctuary on earth to study. Number four. What was another purpose for uh, God had for having the sanctuary built in the wilderness? Genesis 3.15 says, and I will put what? Enmity, and I've kind of put some, some words here to just kind of unpack to help you understand this better. But I put enmity or hatred between you, Satan, and the woman, the church, the woman is a symbol of church in scripture, we'll study that later, and between your seed and her seed. He, Jesus, shall bruise your head and you, Satan, will bruise his heel. This was the first introduction of a Messiah. The very first promise that a deliverer from sin would come. And this message was passed on from generation to generation until the time when Jacob's descendants, Israel, went into Egypt and there came under bondage. As they were surrounded by the paganistic Egyptian culture, they began to lose their distinction as God's people, and they began to lose their understanding and the knowledge of the plan of salvation. So God sent Moses, and he drew them out of that environment, and he brought, led them into the wilderness, and there he gave them the sanctuary as a mechanism of instruction to reacquaint them with the plan of salvation so that God can not only save them, but then also use them to share with the world the plan of salvation. Friends, I want you to know something. The plan of salvation was not just for Jews. It was for the whole world. It was for the whole world. And God wanted all to see that plan. Number five, what is a sanctuary? A sanctuary is a haven, my friends. It is a place of safety, a refuge. In fact, uh, Webster's Dictionary says a sanctuary is a sacred place of refuge and what? 
and protection. And the psalmist David understood this. And in Psalms 91.4, it says, And he shall cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you shall take what? Refuge. My friend, God is our refuge, our protection. And, and in the sanctuary, he wants us to understand this. And so this, this, in, in these studies, we're going to learn how we can cooperate with God so he can be that for us. Number six, what did God want his people to understand? Psalms 48 verse 9 says, We have what? Thought, O God, on your loving kindness in the midst of your temple. You know, this is very interesting. What God wanted was for his people to show up, to come to the temple, and to watch and to consider who he is, his goodness. You know, there's a real misconception today about who God is. My friends, I want to share something with you. I don't know where you are right now. You may be here because you feel you have to be. And, and if that's the case, you're in the right place. <laughs> but listen to me. If you come to know God for who he really is, you're going to fall in love with him. If you know God for who he really is, you know, the devil's job is to malign God. The, devil is, the devil's job is to, is to make God look like the big killjoy in the sky. The big heavy who only shows up when you mess up. So he can zap you with his lightning gun. That's the picture that the devil wants us to have of God. But my friends, if you will give God but a chance, you're going to find in him a friend, a best friend. You will never regret that. But the devil does not want us to know that. You know, it's something very interesting, and I came to learn this later. But when God set up the Mosaic Sanctuary and the people came with their sacrifices, there was no preaching that was done. It's very interesting. What was required of them was to watch the services, to pay attention to what was taking place, to watch what the priests were doing, to watch the sacrifice, to watch the blood that was such an integral part of the sacrifice. And as they prayerfully watched, the Holy Spirit would work in their mind and would begin to put the pieces together. Now, Israel, as you know, apostatized. They were more interested in what everyone else was doing and were more concerned about what everyone else thought than what, what God was doing and what he thought. And so they entered, their, their nation was destroyed. Uh, the Babylonians came and destroyed their temple and they were all taken off into Babylon. And it was in Babylon that they began to consider their ways. And they realized, you know what? We brought this on ourselves. We got to go back to the Bible, to the Holy Scriptures, to walk with God. And so they created something called synagogues. And there they preached the word. And the Christian world now has inherited that model. It's what we use today. But initially, they were to come to the sanctuary and observe prayerfully observe, to consider, and, and as they did so prayerfully, God then would work on their behalf and teach them. What is needed today, my friends, is a correct concept of who God is, and the sanctuary teaches it to us. Number seven, <clears throat> what did the psalmist learn in the temple service? Psalm 73, one through three, and, uh, and verse 17 says, True, this is the words of David again, truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet almost 
stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. David was wrestling with something that you and I wrestle with. Why do bad things happen to good people? And why do good things happen to bad people? David is actually confessing here that this so troubled him that it almost caused him to walk away from God. But then he went into the sanctuary and then the pieces began to fall into place. He began to understand these things in a much larger framework and then he realized that in the end there will be justice. God will right every wrong, my friends. He will do it. And David learned this where? In the sanctuary. And so shall we. You know, I don't know if you came here with questions. I'm sure you have. And I'm not saying that every single one of them will be answered. But you will have sufficient answer to satisfy your heart that God is just and that everything will work out in the end. It will. Let's take a look here at number eight. Where can we find God? Where can we find God? People travel all kinds of pilgrimages. They go to the tops of tall mountains, the Himalayas, to find God. But Habakkuk tells us where he is. Habakkuk 2.20 says, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. God is in the heavenly sanctuary. And he is orchestrating a rescue plan for us. But he is also here on earth as he teaches us. By the way, this is very interesting. I don't know if you were aware, but do you know that God, uh, in the Bible, it references six sanctuaries. Were you aware of that? The first one is one we've been talking about. That's the heavenly sanctuary. The second one we've also been talking about, that's the mosaic sanctuary, which uh, God showed him the pattern of that, uh, that he built in the, in the wilderness. And by the way, we all understand that the one in the wilderness is a miniature of the one in heaven. We, we get that, right? The one in heaven is at a much grander scale. You with me? We'll talk about that as we go along. But the next one, does anyone remember what the next one was? It was Solomon's. Solomon's temple. It was bigger than this one. It was on a bigger scale. Then after that one was Ezekiel's temple, which was never built. God showed it to him in vision. I can't help but wonder if Israel just didn't have the faith to build that temple. And when they left Babylon and they went back home uh, after they were released, they built what we call today Zerubbabel's temple, a much smaller temple. Do you remember what the people did when they saw the foundation of that temple? The people wept because it was so much smaller than Solomon's. But then that temple, when it was remodeled by King Herod, was known as Herod's temple. Same one. But there's yet another temple, my friends. There's another temple where God wants to dwell. And Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. It says, but do you not know that your what? Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you are bought at a price. Therefore, what? Glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now, Unless we understand the temple and its services, we're not going to understand how to glorify God in our bodies. Do you get that? God wants us. He wants to dwell with us, 
But we got to make sure that, our, that, we're, that, that we, could, we present ourselves in a way that is acceptable to him. But how do we know to do that unless we study the sanctuary? We're going to learn about that. We're going to learn about that. So exciting discoveries await us. What do you think? Are you eager? So let's take a look in our remaining time at the outer court, and we're going to look more specifically at the gate, which is the entrance into the sanctuary. And let's see what lesson God, God has for us in the gate, in that door, the one entrance in. Uh, number nine, describe the length of the south and north sides of the court. So that would be uh, the, the, the longer end. And uh, Exodus 27, 9 through 10 talks about the hangings or the walls that they were 100 cubits long. What is a cubit? That's the distance between your elbow to your finger, about 18 inches. That's how they measured things. They didn't have lows to get a, a measuring tape, I guess. But that's what they use as a standard form of measurement. And when we look at that, that tells us that the, the wilderness sanctuary or tabernacle was approximately 150 feet long. That's what it's telling us. Let's take a look at number 10. Describe the width of the court on the west side. Exodus 27 verse 12 tells us that it was 50 cubits wide, approximately 75 feet. How many of you here have ever been to the Messiah's mansion? I'd say about half of you. The Messiah's Mansion is a ministry that is centered in Oklahoma, and they're actually traveling the world over, and they have a life-size model of the sanctuary. And they'll park that somewhere in a community and invite the community through it, and they give them a full gospel presentation because the, the, the sanctuary is all about Christ. It's really interesting. We ought to think about bringing it back. Seeing there's only half of us, we ought to put that in our thinking caps and do that. Um, Number 11, <clears throat> describe the east side of the court. This is where it starts getting exciting. Uh, here we, we find the gate or the entranceway, and there's only one. Exodus 27, 13 through 15 covers the detail here, and it tells us that it was also 50 cubits wide. Uh, on each side of the gate or the door, there were hangings of 15 cubits. So, so here was the gate, here was the door or the gate on either side, was 15 cubits, it tells us. And uh, by the way, we're going to find that uh, the, the curtain was made out of linen, and it was white. And we're going to learn that that linen represented the righteousness of Jesus Christ that covers us. You and I have no righteousness to offer God. All our righteousness is filthy rags. All we can do is accept the righteousness he gives us. Isn't that right? And we're going to talk about that in greater depth. <clears throat> Number 12. Describe the gate or entrance of the court. And Exodus 27, 13 tells us that it had a screen 20 cubits long, or about 30 feet, woven of blue, purple, scarlet yarn, and fine linen thread made by a weaver. My friends, don't you know that that was beautiful to behold? And very invite. By the way, those colors, if you look at that blend of colors, I don't know about you, but it's not one that upsets the senses. It's a very soothing, it has a very mellowing uh, 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 blend to it. And, uh, and it's very, very inviting. 
But, uh, but Israel had very specific instructions that whenever they set up the sanctuary, that door always had to face east. If you were here for a previous sermon I preached, you'll know that I am directionally challenged. And uh, the sanctuary, when I set it up, it's set up in a way that it always has to face this way, but you and I know that's east. And, uh, but, but God gave specific instructions. He told them, wherever you set it up, that door has to face east. Now, I want to ask you a question. Wouldn't something in the back of your head tell you that that's significant? What would be the significance of that? I'm going to share with you two, two, two reasons. One is that Israel was surrounded by pagan nations. And the competing religion of the day was Baal worship. Baal worship was sun worship. And the sun worshiper, when he came to worship his God, he faced east. So the worship of God was to be a safeguard. It was a reminder to his people, don't mix me with that. When you worship me, you turn your back to the east and you face west. It was a safeguard to God's people. But there was another reason. Open your Bibles with me to the book of Genesis. We're going to go to chapter 3. And if you recall, chapter 3 is the fall of Adam and Eve. One is creation. Two were the instructions given to Adam and Eve regarding the tempter. And three is the fall. After Adam and Eve fell... God had to figure out what he was going to do with Adam and Eve. And in verse 22, 23, and 24, we find what God did. By the way, if you don't have a Bible with you, there's a little red one that should be in front of you and there in the pew. Feel free to use that. And if you don't have a Bible at home, please come see me. We'll get you one. But uh, Genesis uh, chapter 3, verses 22, 23, 24, it says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, least he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Let's push pause there. Can you imagine living forever in a fallen condition? You, you know, forgive me, my, 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 this expression, but it would be hell. Are you with me? To live in a fallen condition it was the love, the only loving thing to do was to keep them from the tree of life. That was the only loving thing to do, keep them from it. But it goes on. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim where? At the east of the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword turned every way to what? Guard the way to the tree of life. You see, when Adam and Eve left, they went east. East comes to symbolize walking away from God. But if they were going to ever return, what direction did, would they have to go? Is west. And so as they travel west, the sanctuary was to teach them the way back to God. 
the process, the steps are revealed in the tabernacle. The way home is west, and the sanctuary shows the way home. The angels were sent to guard the way. There's a double meaning there, friends. Not only it was to keep them from eating the fruit and perpetuating sin, but it was also a promise that the way would be kept open, that one day they would be able to return. That's the message there. So how does the gates, what does it tell us about Jesus? How does it symbolize Jesus? Well, Jesus in John 10, 7 and 9 said, I am the door. I'm it. The gate, if anyone enters by me, he will be what? Saved. You see, the only way to be saved is through Jesus Christ. There is no other way. And you know, people try to find other ways. Open your Bible to John chapter 10. John chapter 10, if you're there, say amen. amen. If you need more time, say mercy. Okay, give you a little bit more time here. John chapter 10. And once again, these are the words of Jesus. Follow with me, verse number one. Jesus speaking, most assuredly I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the, we just figured out who the door was, but climbs up another way the same as a thief and a, a robber. You see, my friends, you're not going to be saved by your good works. You're not going to be saved by your, your financial giving. You're not going to be saved by, by uh, your church attendance. You're only going to be saved through the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other way. It's only through Jesus that we're saved. Now, having a relationship with Jesus does impact our life and change us. We're going to talk about that. But those things don't change us, save us. Jesus just saves us. Is that right? Very, very important. And any other attempt at salvation, Jesus calls theft because it's going to rob a soul. It's theft. And then again, Jesus emphasizes this in John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through who? Do we believe that? Do we really? You know, we're living in a day and age where people say there is no absolute truths. And to those people I say, are you absolutely sure about that? The statement is self-defeating. There are absolute truths. And Jesus said that no one is saved except through him. You know, um, I was once, when I was serving a, a, a district in the Midwest, I was given the opportunity, I was approached and asked if I would be willing to be uh, a, a chaplain for hospice. Now I wanna say right here, I am so thankful for hospice. I have found that organization to be one of the classiest organizations I've ever been part of. I have, I have, been, I have worked with people many of them volunteers who were just there to help others in the closing moments of their life to make it as comfortable and meaningful for them as possible. 
You, you have never worked for an organization as caring. I have been so blessed in, that, in, in, in the time that, that I had to, to, uh, to serve hospice and to be part of that very precious organization. Well, <clears throat> when I was working in the Midwest and I was asked for this position, the uh, director of, uh, of that chapter of hospice asked if, if I would come for an informal interview. And what she said to me was, uh, Pastor, the position is already yours. I still have to go through these motions. And, and, and then also give me an opportunity to explain to you what your position will be about. And, uh, and I said, sure, we scheduled a time. And I showed up. We sat down. And she began to uh, tell me everything that the job entailed. And about halfway through, she began to say this. <clears throat> she said, Pastor, when you are ministering to someone of, 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 of another religion, you have to minister to them according to their religion. In other words, if they are Muslim, you have to minister to them in their Muslim faith. And if they ask you to do the funeral, you have to do a Muslim funeral. And they said, if, if, you are, if you're ministering to a, a, a Hindu, you have to minister to them according to their Hindu faith. And if you conduct their funeral, you have to do a Hindu funeral. And if they're Buddhist, and I raise my hand, I said, ma'am, I am very sorry, but I am not the man for this job. And she was very surprised by that. Her eyes were big. She looked at me. She was shocked. She thought maybe she had offended me or something. And, and she said, well, why not? I said, because I am a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And my Bible tells me there is only one way of salvation, and that is to the Lord Jesus. If I do what, what these requirements ask of me, I'm going to betray the cross of Christ. I'm going to betray the gospel, and I'm going to betray those individuals who are going to lose their soul, and their blood is going to be on my hands. And that lady looked at me for a full minute. And finally she said to me, No, you are the man. You do your job. Amen. That lady had starch. And she was a Christian as well. My friends, the only way of salvation is through Jesus. There is no other way. Number 14. Does his invitation to come to him include me? And in Matthew eleven twenty-eight, it says, Come unto me. How many? All, All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You know, the sanctuary is telling us that the first step in salvation is coming to Jesus. That's the first step. This text, uh, this Bible verse, is actually very meaningful to me because when I was young and I knew everything, I lived my life my way. And that journey took me to an attempted suicide. When I was 20 years old, I saw where life took me. And as I reflected on what was ahead, I came to the quick conclusion that life was not worth living. There was nothing in this world that was worth it. And, and it was at that moment on an overcast January afternoon in 1985, that I made the decision to end my life. And when I was in the process of doing that, God broke into my world and spoke to me. 
and quoted Matthew 11:28. Come unto me. All you that are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And the Lord would, you know, the Holy Spirit translated that for me, and, and basically God was saying, George, you did it your way, and look where it's led you. Why don't you give me a try? What do you have to lose? And you know, that made a lot of sense. I was already to end my life and to throw it away. I had nothing else to lose. I decided to give God a try. I came to Jesus. And, and I asked him into my life. And I have never looked back. What an incredible journey he has taken me on that has led me right here to northern Idaho. God is faithful. Jesus Christ, my friends, is the Messiah whose healing ways are symbolically revealed through the sanctuary, and we're going to learn that. And he invites you today to come to him just as you are. My dear friend, God is inviting you to come to a saving knowledge of himself. I'm going to make an invitation here. And at the end of each of these presentations, we're going to have an opportunity to respond to Jesus. And here is your response. Recognizing that Jesus is the only hope for fallen humanity, are you willing to come to Jesus now, today, to be your Savior? You know, there may be somebody here who's never made that decision. You may have wrestled it out. Maybe, maybe you, you once did and walked away. I want to give you an opportunity because God has been tugging at your heart. So where you're, where you're at right now, if you would like to say yes to Jesus and to invite him into your life, would you, would you be willing to stand? And I'll have a special prayer for you. Amen, amen. Is there anyone else who would like to stand who's never made that decision and you would like to make it or perhaps fell away and you want to remake it? Amen. Anyone else? I don't want to deny you this opportunity because you've been wrestling with this. Anyone else that would like to? Amen. Anyone else? Amen. Okay, now, would you like to renew this commitment to Jesus? Would you stand? I want to pray, and then we're going to sing a hymn. I'll ask our songsters to come up. Let's pray. Father, Lord, you saw those who want to give their lives to you. They've wrestled with it, and they, they have made the decision. They want to give their life to you and invite you into their life. We thank you, Lord because you came to this world and risked everything for this moment. Lord, you know there are others who have fallen away who now want to come back to you. And so, Lord, they have stood, and then you saw the others, Lord, who want to renew their commitment to you today. Father in heaven, we ask for the outpouring of your spirit. We ask for your blessings, for your hand to rest on each one here today. We ask for your angels, Lord, to set about them a hedge of protection to guide them, Father. And we pray you give to each the gift of recognition of your voice and your guiding hand. We thank you for this as we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.